Well, we're continuing with our series in the book of Romans. Uh, we're in chapter 2 and going to be looking at um, the Word of God. We're, we're continuing in this section where Paul is really laying out the case, why do we need Jesus? What difference does God make? Aren't we good enough? Uh, do we, is it really as bad as, as people uh, say it is? Um, but before we get started, I'd like to share something with you. Uh, this is something that's been uh, making the rounds last few weeks. Uh, and it's kind of telling. This is a uh, pastor actually had um, written a, uh, um, I don't know, a missive, a blog or whatever, sent it around. And uh, r- the reason why this pastor, just because of his conscience, because of just stuff he, he's tolerated and, and, and put up with and, and working through and all these things, why he's decided to never attend another sporting event again. And so he wrote down, it's kind of shocking because the people that knew this pastor said, well, it was not this extreme separationism that's going on. Why would this pastor just say, I'm never going to another sports event again? Well, here's the, here's the 12 reasons nailed to the door. The coach never came to visit me. Every time I went, they asked me for money. The people sitting in my row didn't seem very friendly. The seats were too hard. The referees made a decision I didn't agree with. I was sitting with hypocrites. They only came to see what the others were wearing. Some games went into overtime and I was late getting home. The band played some songs I'd never heard before. All the sports games are scheduled on my only day to sleep in and run errands. My parents took me to too many games when I was growing up. Since I read a book on sports, I feel I knew more than the coaches anyway. And then finally, I don't want to take my children because I want them to choose for themselves what sport they like best when they're older. Now, you, you probably recognize this. These are all the reasons that pastor has heard why people uh, don't uh, want to attend church anymore. And uh, the reason we can relate to this, and it's sort of humorous at, at first blush, uh, is because we get it. But here's the problem with this. This observation is predicated on both sporting events and church both being spectator events. And it fits because we naturally fall into that understanding, but it's actually an unfair analogy. You see, whereas we could say, this is what I don't like about sports, this is what I don't like about the church, these are the reasons for this or reasons for that, um, the church is not, the Christian life is not a spectator event. God never designed our personhood, our soul work, and our living our lives out to be a voyeuristic process. But think about the world in which you live. It is all about voyeurism. It is all about comparison. There is a reason. It's not just the technology that has made Twitter and Instagram uh, ubiquitous, just everywhere. It's our hearts. That, that we are just programmed down in the core of our being to compare How I am is directly related to how all of you are. Greater than, worse than, more than, less than, better than, whatever it is. And so it's either I'm doing better or you're doing worse. And either are okay because the balance is the same. So we always compare. What did I have to eat? Click. Who am I with? What do I think? What conversation did I have? Um, They did a survey that uh, with, with... Tens of thousands of um, twits, Twitter people. What? Uh, sorry, I know it's an easy joke. Um, those, those who tweet, 
And uh, they found that 95% of the people never really check too closely all the people that they're following. They just kind of buzz through for touch points and other things. But that same 95% believes that everyone else meticulously follows through all of their posts. So they don't really connect and relate and respond to everyone else, but they believe the exact opposite. Because these are our hearts. We compare, we, we judge. Uh, it's all about how other people are, and that defines us. Now think about what we looked at last week in Romans chapter 1. It wasn't just that some people had sinned. It's not just that those people back in the days of, of yore uh, decided that they could do it better than God and they got consequences and messed it up. It's all of us as humans have fallen completely, have been disconnected from our life source. Hope has been removed. Our, our, our source of strength, our purpose, our context completely darkened and silenced. And it's the shipwreck of a world we're trying to make sense of. But we're doing so through fallen hearts. They don't prop up. They're, they're, it's like boneless chicken. You ever been to a boneless chicken ranch? It'd be funny, but um, if there were such a thing, that's sort of our hearts... Um, Minus the operation of the image of God. We're still made in the image of God, but it's been tarnished and it's been underutilized and it's just there. See, coming to Christ when it says work out your faith in fear and, and, and trembling, uh, it, it's try on your faith, show the world what it looks like. Looks like the image of God. That's what we look like. Most robust when we're doing as God does, feeling as God feels, forgiving and loving as God loves and forgives. That's when we're most us. But because of this fallenness, all of that has darkened. All of that is not operating. It, it's dead. That, that lifeline is gone. And so there's nothing to prop us up. And so we use the shipwreck of our own lives and the lives of, of the world around us to prop up an image, a structure for ourselves. But it's all judgment. It's all comparison. And this is how we've learned to identify ourselves, to make a way for ourselves, and to see ourselves even before God. Judging others is no substitute for personal obedience. See, last week, everyone was locked up under sin. And, and the case was being made that every single human being, if you are homo sapien erectus, if that's your DNA, you need a savior. Because we've all been disconnected from God. But now what Paul is doing is he's recognizing that you can't preach a message to people who are going to read this seeking God where you're not going to have some people that know better. And so he's saying, okay, well, what about the good person? What about the moralist? What about either the believing Jew or, in our case, we'll say, what about the, the person who's grown up in church? Surely, all those horrible things we, we looked at last week, surely none of those could apply to them. Don't we know better? Aren't we somehow in a different category? Well, let's look at the Word of God. Romans chapter 2. You... That you, it's referring to all of us, it's plural. You all, therefore, have no excuse, y'all who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. 
So that when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repent? So I'll leave that up there. See, judgment, first thing we have to see, judgment's not based on our performance in a particular area. All of us rock certain things. All of us are experts. All of us are very adept and it's very naturally easy and comfortable and familiar. We're good at certain things. And all of us likewise just are not good at other things, be it out of ignorance or unfamiliarity, out of weakness, out of poor choices, out of, out of whatever the case may be. That's, that's for all of us. It's where we jump in. So it's really easy, whether it's in, 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 in with friendships or whether it's in school or, or, or sports or whatever it is, to say, I I can do this really well, so I'm going to compare people in this area. In church, it's very easy to say, I don't struggle in this way. I don't sin in this way. So it's very easy to say, I've got it worked out. I can, I can clearly pass judgment. You are wrong, and I'm not. And, it, and it's, it's plain as day to see. But what Paul is saying here, what, what the Holy Spirit is saying to us, the point isn't whether we're good in this area. If you pass judgment on someone at this point, the fact is, are we perfect? Are we sinless? Are we able to judge clearly? Because the fact that we have sin, that we have loved sin, that we think we can do it better or we can get by or, or we have our crutches that, that just me, Jesus, and whatever else I think I need is enough. That has tainted our ability to judge, to even see ourselves as we should see ourselves. And so it's a sense of we think it's enough to know the truth And it's a poor substitute for doing the truth. And there's a world of difference between them. And this is a particular danger for those in the church. Because it's the air we breathe. We're very familiar with the truth. But is, is it a real operating principle under which our life passes? Or is it a familiarity around which our life moves? And that's all the difference in eternity right there. See, the parable of the tax collector and, and, the, and um, the Pharisee, Jesus told this story to illustrate this point. And he's told, told the people, think of the most righteous person you can think of. It's you, Jesus. No, they didn't say that. Think of the most righteous person, a Pharisee, somebody who is a professional rule follower and has so much extra time, they devise rules around rules around rules for others to follow. That, that's how serious they are. And then imagine the worst person. A Nazi sympathizer, which in this case would be a tax collector. Tax collector isn't the Infernal Revenue Service, right? It's, yeah, thank you. It's Romans 13. We got to pay our taxes. That's obedience to God, straight up. So nonetheless, um, it's tax collectors, not um, the tax man. Tax collector that Jesus is referring to in this story was a toll booth collector. This is the person um, that was at the gate of the city and everyone entering had to pay them a bribe to get in to be able to sell their wares. So this was a Jew who corroborated with the Romans who ripped off his own people using imperial might uh, to, to betray. So this is the most hated person ever. These two people standing shoulder to shoulder in the forgiveness cage match. Two walk in. One walks out forgiven. One of them says, the good person, the churchgoer says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not this person living in this lifestyle, doing these kinds of sins because everybody knows this person's wrong. 
Lord, you must be glad I'm on your team because I give you extra money. I'm a faithfully attend church. I attend the prayer meeting. I know all the songs. I know the Bible cover to cover. I quote chapter and verse. And I don't do these other things. I'm not a liability, God. So thank you for thanking me. You're welcome. And the other person said, wouldn't even look up. Knew he was condemned. Said, God, I'm a sinner. You know I'm a sinner. Just have mercy on me. And Jesus said, it's straightforward. There only one person's heart was, was transformed. And it was the one who confessed the truth. Again, the word to confess means to say the same. What the other person did is did not say the same. The Pharisee was saying, I am good in all these areas, therefore I pass judgment. And it's the same. I know your word, Lord, therefore I don't have to do all of it, as long as I do most of it. Nothing changed in the heart. He was just as blind and lost and unforgiven as when he came in thinking he was serving God. The other person was just as blind and lost and shut down when he went in, but was freed up because he said the same. Have mercy on me, Lord. I'm a sinner. I can't judge. I'm tainted. I can't. I don't have my own life worked out at all. How dare I even think about somebody else's? Lord, help me. I'm drowning. See, when we hear a message and it's, I want this person to hear it and I can't wait for this person to hear it and I'm going to send this person a sermon, that's great because we want God's word to be operative in our lives. But first and foremost, it's what does God have for me? You guys know where I struggle every week because there's one person that needs to hear the sermon. Needs to, I know for sure, and it's me. And I'm hoping maybe it might be helpful for others as well. But first and foremost, I need this. See, we put the bar at knowing and comparing because it's easy, because it's familiar, because we can go with the grain. I'm going to ask you two questions, and it's the same answer for both. What's the most Christianized country in Africa? Christianized country in terms of most believers, most confessing believers, most baptisms, most Bibles, most missionaries sent, most confessions of faith, most churches built, most missionaries present, most pastors in operation. So of all those factors, the number one most Christianized country in Africa is this. What was the site of one of the worst genocides that we've ever experienced as a human race in terms of per capita slaughter and carnage, complete brutality, uh, the rate at which people were killed, the numbers at which people were killed, and the speed at which it happened. It's the same answer, Rwanda. You have the most Christianized country where the gospel had been preached. Everybody was in church. They were sending missionaries to other countries. And yet, in a heartbeat, evil heart of man comes up. Almost a million people were butchered. Women, children with machetes. Horrible, horrible evil. It's not enough to hear a sermon. It's not enough to go to church. It's not enough to be familiar with the gospel. It's not enough just to know the law of God. It's not enough to know right and wrong, to be baptized, to be a good Christian person. If it doesn't translate into action, it's for nothing. Edmund Burke said that evil triumphs when good people do nothing. Okay, this is even the opposite of that. So 
There is no substitute to putting ourselves in play, in action, real hearts, because this is why God created us in the very first place. He didn't create us to know. He created us to do. Let us create man in our image to be our image, to do our image, to do as we would, not just to know what is right and wrong and shake our heads at a world that, that's lost. And then it says the kindness and patience of God is what leads us to repentance. One of the, the, the greatest tragedies, I think, is that people see the word of God as, as slavery. I can't live my life. I've, I've got to have it constrained somehow. And, and that God is just waiting for me to trip up and he's going to get me when nothing could be further from the truth. Throughout God's word, it says that he is extending mercy. He is waiting. He is patient that we would see him for who he truly is. Paul writes to Titus, a pastor um, who's got a church in Fort Lauderdale during spring break. Um, or, or Burning Man in Black Rock Desert. Uh, basically, Crete was a monster party area, and everyone there is just getting hammered all the time. And he writes to him saying, this is what you need to remember when you're teaching the people about sin. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no. What, what, what teaches us to say no to sin? God's judgment, God's wrath, condemnation, hell. What, what teaches us to say no? The grace of God. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives like God in this present age while we wait for his blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself to redeem, for us to redeem us from all wickedness against anything against one another and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. He doesn't want people that just know the truth. He wants people that learn it, that live it, that love it, that breathe it, that sweat it. What is in you? That there is this hope, this engagement. It is a real time. I know who Jesus is because I just spoke with him. I just wrestled with him. I just went to the mat with him for two out of three falls. He won again. It's good. Um, that there's this real-time connection rather than knowing about him. Because the big difference is this. All the difference in the rule between I have to and I get to. When following God be becomes I have to do this, then we're fighting ourselves. We're fighting our hearts. We, we have a sense of, of I ought to be this way, but God's not going to let me. But when we understand this is who has made us, who knows what is best and wants us to live in a way that's going to be most life-giving and, and, and freeing up, then we get to live in a way that most accords this way. And now we war against the world and, 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 and Satan and, and things that seek to rob us of joy and rob us of presence with God. Moving right along. But rather than using the patience to come to God, in other words... When it says that the patience of God leads to salvation, it's not just saying that he gives us time, hoping more people are going to make the, you know, finish the marathon before we call time. Uh-uh. It's he gives patience so that we would know what kind of God would want us for himself.
Okay, you're going to follow this up. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay everyone according to what they've believed. Right? Isn't that what he says? God will repay everyone according to what they've believed. Don't say that. Because belief's easy. Talk's cheap. We believe whatever we want. It doesn't cost us anything. He will repay everyone according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. That's called justice, by the way. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Paul says that because he's saying, this is God's story. He picked a person that became a family, that became a nation. Through that, he showed the world, this is what it is to have restored fellowship. So through the Jews, salvation came to people. That was first in order. And then through the Jews to the non-Jews, the Gentiles, that's the rest of the story. That's the order here. First the Jew, then the Gentile, or maybe Greek and some other translations. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. It's what you do and what you don't do that makes a difference. No favoritism. In fact, if you know God's word, pass judgment on others, and don't do it, it's even worse. It's even worse. We may not believe what we say. We may not know ultimately, but we will eventually always do what we truly believe. It's not enough just to know. Again, why is the final judgment scene portrayed in Matthew 25 as works? Because we have all sorts of mixed motivations. And that's okay, God uses them. But at the end of the day, what we truly believe is played out through these, played out through these, played out through this, played out through these. It's our actions. What's most important? What is true? Where's their life? Where's their death? We're running out of time, so moving right along. All who sin apart from the law will also, also perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, if you've never heard the word of God, you're still a sinner. How does that happen? He's going to explain. If you're a churchgoer and you know God's word, do you do it or not? For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences bearing witness, their thoughts now accusing or defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges everyone's secrets through Jesus Christ, just as my gospel declares. It's the equalizer. It comes right back to the same thing. This is a message for all of us as humans, not for how have we heard God's word? Have we not? Because he's saying our core humanity needs God is separate from God. And that's what we long for. So God is saying, you don't need to have my word, my truth spelled out for you in a book for you to know right from wrong. He's saying, I've given you a conscience. Every human being has a conscience, how we're made, what violates the image of God within us 
as we violate it in others or ourselves, and what glorifies the image of God in others as we bless others, bless ourselves in, in obedience. So we all have a conscience of knowing what's right and wrong. Elsewhere, um, Paul could say, those who have just continually not done right, they've like, like if you have an iron and you, you sear your skin, it's numb because you kill the nerves. We've killed our conscience. We're unable to hear from God anymore. The more we hear a voice, the more we recognize it even when it's quiet. The more we don't hear that voice, the harder it is to hear it in a crowd. That's following God. That's what Paul's saying now. He's saying all of us have this heart. All of us have this conscience. All of us have God's creation outside, God's conscience within, leading us to him. But at the end of the day, there's only one thing that's going to make the difference. It's not knowledge. It's action. It's not attending church. It's being the church. It's not liking God. It's being like God. And there's only one way this can happen. And it's through surrender to the work of Christ and allowing him to live his life out through us. Is it familiarity or is it reality? And maybe it's a way of I, I, church is familiar for me, so I think I'm in, but, but there's got to be something more. And that could be the case, and I'm going to speak to that. Or maybe it's a sense of I'm walking with the Lord, I know his word, and, and maybe a message for us to take away is my natural tendency is to judge others, and the challenge would be, well, what would God have for me? Is it familiar? Is it familiar? Or is it real? I'll close with this illustration. I'm not a Marine. I'm not a, I'm not, I have never served in the military. I have never worn a uniform. But I grew up as an MK, as not a missionary kid, as, as a Marine kid. My father, 30-year Marine. So I'm very familiar with the Marine Corps. Uh, in the Marine Corps, you learn to talk in swearing or acronyms, and they actually have acronyms where you can swear, like REMF and all sorts of cool things. And so I, I can talk like a Marine more than most Marines. I know all, all the abbreviations. I'm familiar with all the designation. I, I know how it's constructed. I know I have a lot of friends who are in the Marine Corps, a lot of family friends. Um, and so there's a great deal of familiarity how the Corps works behind the scenes. But that's very different than actually being a Marine. I've been in combat. I have a lot of experience receiving fire. I have no experience laying down fire. So big difference between the two. Adrenaline level is probably the same, I imagine, but huge difference. Okay, there is a familiarity with the word of God, with the truth, with what we should do, with what we shouldn't do. But is it a, is it a familiarity because it's just been there all along and we understand it? Is it a familiarity because we agree with it and we think we should all live this way? But is that all there is? Or do we continually press forward to say, I don't want it to just be something that's familiar, just that's part of my life, just that's kind of tumbled around with the rest of life, but it is the reality. It is the driving factor in my life. And so the word of God isn't, I've got to do this. I can't do this. I need to curtail, or, or yeah, I've, I've got to, um, I have to do it, but I get to live a life that is most freed. That is most um, life-giving. This week, because we live in a voyeuristic society, this week, because we have hearts that are fallen, 
this week because we are still works in progress. We're, we are yet learning to find all of our identity in Christ, uniquely manifested in us. And we are still, unfortunately, taking cues from the world and from one another with the way we think we should be and the way our lives would be. This week, you will have great opportunity to put this sermon into practice. This week, there's going to be so many opportunities for us to judge others. Judge others who are clearly wrong. Judge others who might be wrong. Judge others who probably aren't, and we are, but we're blind, so they might as well be wrong. We could be true in rendering judgment. We, we could not be. We, we're going to judge others. That goes without saying, okay? We're going to judge others. But here's the thing. Rather than it just being nailed it, or I agree with the word of God, or it's a snap thing, or it's familiar, I write them off and on my way, can we do the extra step and say, I'm judging someone else. What am I not doing in my life? You see, because when we take the, it, we've got a placeholder and we can either do, I'm doing my life, I'm living it out, I'm putting it into practice and attitude and heart and all of this as a participant or I'm being a spectator and I'm judging. You can't do both. So when we find that we are a spectator, that we are judging, that we've taken ourselves out of play, we're no longer an agent for healing or changing someone else's life because we're not on the field, but we're back in the stands the seats are too hard. Coach hasn't visited me. I, I, I know a better book on coaching. Um, that, that, that team's running a better defense. Whatever it is, use that as an opportunity saying, I'm a spectator. I'm not a player now. How do I get back down on the field? And it's what do I need to know? God, why is this ringing in my heart? Why is this provoking me? Why is this bothering me? What is it in my judgment of others? And it might be absolutely true that I need to hear where I can be back no longer a spectator, but back playing again. And use each of these opportunities rather than being condemnation or, yeah, yeah, I should do better. Or, or after the fact, maybe realizing, man, that was a little harsh. I was judging. That if we could learn to turn this around as opportunities, how we can be players in the game. Very easy to talk about. Very difficult to wrestle with. Just when we think we're doing well, <laughs> guess what? There's more patience and there's more kindness to show what kind of God is hanging in there, even with our inconsistency, that we could do this better. I'm going to fail a hundred times this week, but guess what? God has not failed me. He has already won the victory, and that is my hope. That I can get the eyes off of me and comparing back and forth, and I can put it more and more on who I already am in Christ, and can continually be more and more of a player and engaged one with another. This is a choice that all of us have this week, that all of us have in life, that all of us have going forward from this day. Because it's so easy to be a spectator. It costs us nothing. We fit exactly into the world, and we don't even notice it. But God has called us to be players, to be changers, to be movers, to get down there, to smell the grass as, as, as we're tackled in, right? whatever sports metaphor you want to use, I don't care. Um, the ice is where scattered, whatever. Um, to be doing it. That's how we're made. That's where we come alive. Anything short of that, we're going to be frustrated. We're going to be sniping. We're going to break down. But when God has us all firing on all these cylinders, the rest of it's going to take care of itself. Let's pray. God, I know my heart. How easy, how I can compare so quickly, so readily 
judge, jury, executioner before I even realize it. I pray for conviction, Lord. That I'd be able to see me much more readily how you see me. Through your eyes of love and grace and acceptance. Through your eyes of holiness. That I would not tolerate what you don't tolerate. And yet, Father, it wouldn't just end with one more time that Bill messed up, but one more opportunity for your kindness to be manifest in helping me to get back up and to move on. I thank you that you've called us to play, called us to participate, called us to experience absolutely everything that we can in your kingdom. And I grieve over the fact of how often I've abdicated those opportunities for change in life and substance to armchair quarterback and to judge and to check out. And so I pray, Father, for each of us here. Show us where we have passively or actively uh, allowed comparison or allowed knowledge or allowed judgment or allowed the way we walk with you to trump how others walk with you. That we could be all together on the field serving together. The stakes are high, the hour is short. You have called us to such a high calling, but you have accomplished it all for us. Let us walk in that grace and walk in that freedom, a team united in you, that this world would know there is a God who loves, who comes near. And as much as you're perfect and didn't need to do this, you're the one who more than we'll ever know, walked a mile in our shoes before you judged us, that we could find our way to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I'd like to invite the ushers uh, forward. Uh, We're closing right now, but the last three weeks we have been talking about tithing, talking about uh, how we worship God with our finance, how we worship God with trust, and and taking a step. And we had cards last week. We have them in your bulletin. If you missed out this week, and that's fine. You you can bring them next week. But we'd ask you to take these cards and and to pray about what, what God's challenging you with this year, with a future that's yet unknown to you, but very known to God where you would want him to bring in the extra finances as we give to the kingdom. And so for those of you that have prayed and and signed a card, again, there's no amount on it. We're not looking at names. It's between you and God, but it's a commitment. It's a setting your heart, if you will. It's as God said, try me. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And so the ushers are going to collect these cards, and we're going to offer them up to the Lord in prayer. Uh, So just allow, allow those to go forward going to worship and we're going to pray at the end of this song.
Lay these offerings before you, that you would do your utmost through these gifts and multiplying them, that more would hear your truth, know your truth, be transformed by your truth, and do your truth, Lord. But that you would also magnify yourself through each giver as well, with hearts open wide to you that it would be your faithfulness in in meeting uh, financial needs and so far beyond, but also it would be your faithfulness in meeting the givers in so many new ways, so many unexpected ways, so many uh, reassuring ways, Father. That one year hence, Lord, your kingdom will have expanded through the faithful stewardship of these gifts, but each heart would have been enlarged by running the way of your commandment. So we commit ourselves to you and we ask, Father, in all the ways yet remaining where our hearts can stick to the good gifts that you've given us in this world. Let us see all of this as an opportunity to worship you, the giver, the father with whom there is no shifting shadow. The true lover of our soul who wants the very best, who is the very best. We worship, we love you, we commit our way to you in Christ's name. All right, this brings us to the end of our service. Again, opportunity to go from the noun to the verb, from a service to a service to be his will. If you would like prayer for anything gone on this week or that you're facing next week, I'd like to invite our prayer counselors down. They'll pray for you right here. If you'd like to find out more how you can get connected to Bethel, right through those uh, doors, there's some chairs and couches. Love to talk with you. Uh, We do have the men's conference next week. We have all church prayer meeting 5 o'clock tonight. And our evening service kicks off at 6.30. It's a different service, different message, different worship, all of that. And so invite you to that as well. So lots of opportunities to do, to be His will. We'll see you next week. Take care.